0: From the Gospel of John, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. The last two weeks we have been uh, drawing parallels between the very first Easter and this near unprecedented situation in which we find ourselves today. But today is when the paths begin to diverge. After all, when many of us are locked in our homes for fear of contracting or worse spreading the coronavirus, the disciples were locking their doors in fear. No, okay, we're still tracking with the text. We're still uh, right where we were in the last couple weeks. In fact, in our passage for today, it is still Easter Sunday, and just that morning, so again, it's the same day, this text takes place in the evening of Easter Mary had announced to the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead. She was an eyewitness, and the disciples are huddled and locked in their homes. Now, Father Chris mentioned last week that Mary's testimony might be sketchy to some people, but these guys had known her well. They broke bread together, they learned together, and yet, if you'll notice, the disciples are not out looking for Jesus. They aren't preaching about His resurrection, they're not strategizing church planting. They are huddled in fear behind closed doors, and their fear is legitimate. Their fear is legitimate, and we, and, we, and we see this in our own situation. Their fear is legitimate. Peter had already been cornered three times for his association with Jesus. You remember that. Peter denied Him three times because he'd been pointed out as a disciple of Jesus. And only days earlier they had seen their beloved rabbi methodically and viciously taken apart on the cross. And this is truly a dark moment for the disciples. Look, if you have your gospel in front of you, go ahead and open it and look at this part. It says that it was evening. You know, John purposely mentions that it was dark. Throughout the gospel of John, he does this interplay between light and dark, between good and evil. And this was a really dark moment for the disciples. They had had a picture of what their future was going to look like. They had this image of triumph, of an expectation of joy, of fulfillment, and they had gambled their lives on it only a few days before, and it was violently torn from them in a matter of hours. The road in front of them was dark, and there were no path, no signposts, not even light enough to see their next step. And the words of Jesus spoken a mere three days ago when He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Take heart, I have overcome the world. He said those three days prior, and yet these words are already forgotten. Or perhaps the disciples remember them merely as bitter irony. What peace is there in the abyss? What peace is there in this black maw of chaos and uncertainty? And so the disciples are hiding sheep without a shepherd. They didn't dare to believe Mary. They didn't dare to hope. Their faith had been stripped down in the fire of a crucible because the foundation of their faith, by all appearances, had failed them. It wasn't just Thomas who doubted. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap doubting Thomas, but he's not the only one who doubted. They all did, just as we all did the moment we first discovered that God is not predictable. I want you to think for a second and remember that time in your life when you experienced a significant loss and the certainty of your future shifted beneath your feet. You knew that tomorrow was not going to be anything like the day before. And there are plenty of examples of this. Uh, A young athlete is paralyzed in a car accident and his future prospects are shut before him. A marriage falls apart, a father leaves his family, a loved one dies too soon. The ground has shifted beneath our feet, and we are living in a time of uncertainty. And what we don't always realize in those times of uncertainty, because really, how could we? How could we think about this in a time of profound loss is that what we had placed our faith in were the gifts and not the giver. What's hard for us to realize is that just because God is all-knowing and all-powerful does not mean that we are, and we are in no place to judge. And what we don't always realize is that even in moments of uncertainty, God is neither absent nor is He idle. There's a silly cartoon that makes its way uh, around the Internet from time to time, and maybe you've seen it. It's a man praying for protection, and uh, you know, again, it's, it's a silly cartoon. He's, he's down on his knees, and he's praying for protection from God and he stands up fully confident in the protection. He takes three steps and he gets knocked in the back of the head with a stone. Have you all seen this one? And he, he rubs his head and he looks around and he's like, God, what in the world, right? I was just praying for protection. I was just praying for ease. And then the panel kind of zooms back and you see this enormous picture of Jesus. You all know what I'm talking about, right? This enormous picture of Jesus with his arms spread open, getting pelted with boulders that he's protecting the man from. And Jesus turns and he says, ah, sorry. Did I miss one? Are you all right? You know, now, please don't run too far with that theology because it's terrible. Uh, God doesn't just miss things. But what I do want to illustrate is the point that God is not as absent or idle as we would believe. That just because we are experiencing tragedy or suffering or incredibly difficult times does not mean that God is not at work in the tragedy, that there's not greater things that are being prevented, that God's hand isn't in all of it. I mean, do you know where Jesus went when they laid His body to rest in the tomb? Do you know where Jesus was on Holy Saturday? We skip this part in the Nicene Creed, right? We recite the Nicene Creed every Sunday, and we proclaim every Sunday, He suffered and was buried, and the third day He rose again. But, but if you're doing your morning prayer… And you read the Apostles' Creed, we get a little extra detail. It says that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. So, what was Jesus doing on Holy Saturday? Well, he descended into hell. He, de- he descended into hell. He descended to the dead. And now, what do you think he was doing in hell? What do you think Jesus was doing in hell? Uh, it's not a hot vacation destination. No pun intended. That was a terrible joke. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't there just kind of hanging out and having a good time. He went to hell to kick tail and take names. He wasn't lying in His tomb passive while the world was falling apart. He was incredibly active. He was not idle. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, this is what it says, Since therefore the children, that's us, we share in the flesh and blood, Jesus shares in our flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And catch this that through that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What was Jesus doing in hell? He was destroying death. He was overcoming the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and He was delivering all of us from the fear of death, where once we were subject to slavery, a lifelong slavery to death. Jesus was not idle. Jesus, in fact, was engaged with our great adversary on a cosmological scale to free us from the tyranny of death and to preach to those who were imprisoned. That's from 1 Peter, by the way. Do you remember when Jesus blessed Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and and He said the gates of hell will not stand against the church? Well, the gates of hell didn't stand so well against Jesus either, did they? And the scope of His power is so far beyond anything in that place that He was apparently able to stroll around and to preach to the spirits in hell. Isn't that incredible? All right, let's get back to the text. The disciples are hiding in the locked door of the upper room, and Jesus appears among them, and he says, peace be with you. And then he shows him his battle scars. He shows him the holes in his hand and the feet and the holes in his feet from the nails, and he shows them the gash in his side that he got from the spear, the wounds he has stained by making peace between us and God. And He did all of this before descending into hell to overcome death. And then He says it again to the disciples. What does He say? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And that's when you can imagine that everything begins to click for the disciples, that the words that Jesus has spoken three days before, peace I leave with you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Take heart, I have overcome the world. He has fulfilled His promises to them. They can be at peace with God because their sins are forgiven. They can be at peace facing down death because it's no longer a terminal condition. The peace that Jesus speaks over them is a declaration of victory. Now their physical circumstances hadn't changed, right? They were still in danger of being associated with Jesus. They were still in danger of persecution. In fact, that persecution is lived out in a very real way for them in the coming months and years. But Jesus is imparting with them peace because He has fulfilled them promises, and the peace that Jesus speaks over them is a declaration of victory. And then Jesus breathes on them That was a really perfect opportunity for a coronavirus joke, but I'm not going to take it. Uh, the breath sorry, <laughs> it's a little levity. The breath that Jesus breathes on them actually harkens all the way back to the moment of creation in Genesis, where God breathed life into Adam. Jesus was breathing new life into disciples with the impartation of the Holy Spirit. But there was one disciple who wasn't present. One disciple who was not sheltering in place. That was Thomas. And when he returns, it plays out like you'd expect. The other disciples claim to have seen the Lord, and Thomas is buying it not at all. But would you? Would I? What's Thomas say? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know, that word place there, in the Greek, it's actually a word ekbalo, and it's not gently like I'm going to gently place it. It's actually shove or cast or throw. The King James Version actually translated it better. It says thrust, thrust my hands into his side. I will never believe. It's strong language. It's a strong protest, and it's really hard to read that without hearing the hardened edge of a skeptic. Never believe. You know that there are countless books There are countless lectures, there are countless documentaries that offer evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's all types of evidence. There's eyewitness evidence, documentary evidence, medical evidence, and so on. And at most of the skeptics I know have no interest in evaluating their own skepticism. They don't engage with these materials. In fact, um, if they were to, it is only with an eye to Uh, try to discredit them and ignore the evidence that points to Jesus. And there's a lot of possible reasons for this. There's a lot of possible reasons for the heart of the skeptic, and I have been a skeptic. I'm sure many of you have been a skeptic. Perhaps you are a skeptic, and certainly all of us know skeptics. And some of the reasons that we are all skeptics, some of the reasons that I have been a skeptic is, uh, one of them is that uh, as long as God doesn't exist, I can embrace whatever immoral behavior I choose right? As long as there's no God, as long as there's no right and wrong, as long as there's no morality beyond myself, I can do whatever I would like. Thank you very much. Lee Strobel, who was an atheist turned Christian, and he's an author of some of these uh, books, he said about his own, uh, his own early atheism, he said, I could see some gaps and inconsistencies, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them, a self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I were ever to change my views and become a follower of Jesus. Now maybe that's not where your heart is. Some of us are skeptics for other reasons. Some of us, it's just seeing the hypocrisy and immorality in people who claim to be Christians themselves. Have you ever been here? Have you seen people who get on their knees and pray to God on Sunday and then do whatever they want on Monday? That can lead to a hardened edge of a skeptic. or for some people, it's buying the early 20th century fiction that somehow faith and science are opposed to each other, never mind, that, uh, never mind that the principles of science were established by people like Robert Bacon, who was an avowed Christian and was just seeking to see how God created the world. So there's a lot of reasons that people become skeptics, but one of them, and I think this one might be most applicable to Thomas, is that for some, the darkness of disappointment, the hardness of loss and bitterness... That had been experienced by all the disciples can become so heavy and so impenetrable and so embittering that light becomes no more than a pleasant fiction. Uh, Years ago, I had a roommate, and we'll call him Jimmy. Uh, He's a brilliant mind, a brilliant musician, and he was a hardened atheist. And I was in seminary at the time that we were rooming together, and it led us to some really wonderful discussions. But one night, I had become a little bit exasperated because he refused to believe despite everything that we had been speaking about, and so I just asked him. It was late at night, and I said, Jimmy, if an angel appeared right now, right here in this room, and all of his, you know, splendor and glory, and was shining in front of you and said, you know, God exists and His Son is Jesus Christ, I said, would you, would you be convinced then? Would that do it for you? And he thought about it for a second. He said, No. I would just know that I was hallucinating. That's the hardened edge of a skeptic, but at the same time, there's one other detail about Jimmy that you ought to know. Um, When Jimmy was four years old, he entered into his parents' bedroom, and he found his dad's lifeless body who had died from natural causes, and from that point on, the world just stopped making sense to him. So again, sometimes there's a hardened edge of a skeptic who has seen a bit too much darkness to let the light come in. And Thomas, who had been walking with Jesus and who loved Him dearly, who in fact, chapters earlier, had been willing to go and die with Jesus as they, go, as they went to visit Lazarus, stated with a hard and bitter edge, unless I see in His hands the mark of the nails, I will never believe. But Jesus meets even Thomas in this place. Jesus shows up eight days later. Now, the way that uh, the Jews would count days was they would count the day that they were in. So this would be the first day. So you would count from the day that you're in all the way up. So Jesus shows up the next Sunday, the very next Sunday, the day that He was resurrected, and He says to all of the disciples, including Thomas, peace be with you. These promises are for you too, Thomas. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. You know, in this remarkable act, the ruler of the cosmos pursues Thomas personally and answers him according to his doubt. He meets Thomas exactly where he is, as he then does with Peter in the next chapter, and as he is willing to do for each one of us, prevailing against any obstacles that we would have erected against him. You see, Jesus meets us personally in our moments of doubt or despair, and He answers the questions of our hearts in a very real nature, in a very real way, one-on-one for all of us who are willing to open the doors to Him. Revelations um, says this in chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with Me. Jesus is willing to meet each of us where we are. After all, He's already been to hell. Do you imagine that there is any place that He is not willing to go? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You pursue us, that You desire to enter into a relationship with us, that there is no obstacle that we can put up that You are not willing to knock down, that there is no place that You are not willing to enter into that into our doubts and into our fears and uh, into the way that we are trying to construct our lives in the face of this near unprecedented pandemic, Pandemic, I thank you that you are willing to knock on our doors, that you would enter in, that you would dine with us, and that you would make us whole again. It's your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.